Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled The Gospel of Thomas. The talk was given by David Hertz on December 16th, 2023, via Zoom. David is a spiritual practitioner who lives in Paris, where he has been a journalist, technical writer, communications officer, and an English instructor at several universities. In this talk, he discusses the background of the Gospel of Thomas and refers to some of its most credible translations. He suggests a website, which can be found online by going to Gospel of Thomas Commentary, for anyone wanting to look more deeply into the 114 logia, or sayings attributed to Jesus, which make up the Gospel, several of which are considered in the presentation. David mentions a number of spiritual masters, including Osho, Arnaud Desjardins, Gurdjieff, Mayor Baba, and his own teacher, Lee Loswick author of the book Pay Attention and Remember, which contains a section of commentaries on the Gospel of Thomas. He notes that we can reflect on the meaning of these sayings and make them our own. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. David Hertz. Hello, everyone. It really is a pleasure and an honor to do this. It's a pleasure to be in this space. I will share what I have discovered, what I've thought about. I thought we would begin with a poem that I wrote for you, for you all. I haven't given it a title. I'll read it. By what book have you been brought into this world? What words have hemmed you in until you set them free? Do you remember the motor whose cord you pulled, the one that was to lift you over the peaks you claimed were blocking your view, but then dropped you where else but here? As I skate along the present, making that rasping sound skates make when you turn a corner, my scrambled view conjures a word, a poem, a prayer, and I wish to be ready to receive them wherever I might find myself. I grew up, Jesus was not part of my education at all. As a matter of fact, he was the guy that we didn't talk about at all because he just didn't fit in. I'm talking about Judaism. He just didn't seem to fit into Judaism. So Jesus was this entity that was hovering about. It was very dangerous because he could sweep in uninvited and unexpected and just simply convert me. There was a literal uneasiness, which is the original meaning of dis-ease about him. And then little by little, I found out more about him, and I came to admire him very strongly and very deeply. But my whole attitude towards him evolved. And much more recently, I was recommended reading of a man named Geza Vermes, who's from a Hungarian family who had been assimilated. Hungarian Jews had been assimilated. They had become Catholics. And 
he escaped the Holocaust, and he became an expert on the Gospels, on the life of Jesus. And he is one of the foremost authors of Jesus, and wrote many magnificent books about Jesus, one of them being The Authentic Gospels of Jesus, where he compares Luke, Matthew, and Mark, and Thomas. He brings in to compare these Gospels. So a little background. Another inspiration for tonight's talk is Lee Laszlo's book. There's a chapter, 23 pages or so, on the Gospel of Thomas, commentary on the Gospel of Thomas, very precious. And I will get to that because it's just the sort of commentary that will be useful to us. So... At the time of Jesus, three or four major communities, one of them, the Essenes, people tend to admire because Jesus is supposed to have been part of them. They were living along the Dead Sea. And according to one source, I found they were awaiting God's intervention. They produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. But according to this description, they described the concept of the personification of evil in all others, including other Jews who disagreed with their views. Ah, the spiritual people sure have trouble getting along. So I didn't want to bring bad press to the Essenes, but apparently that's one of the aspects of their teaching. Another group was the Sadducees, who were the priests in the priestly houses maintaining the temple. Another were the Pharisees, who believed that Jews should live according to priestly traditions, according to the book of Leviticus and the zealots who claimed that only God should be their king. So, Jesus lived in this time, and he spoke Aramaic. The Gospels of Thomas are written in parables, which a lot of Jesus' teaching transmitted in the Gospels is in parables. Parables is a very peculiar way to transmit. For us, for me, desperately needs clarity. This isn't the way to go. But it's also clear that clarity often gets us nowhere. Clarity is very unsatisfactory. Why? Why is clarity so unsatisfactory? It's like the answer to the immediate question doesn't tend to open up the terrain. Clarity is useful when you first have this feeling of happiness. Something's being opened up because it's clearing your view into something else. You're not sitting there. You're moving. So I have a quote. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that, and I quote, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. And then there's a phrase, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. So, I quoted the whole statement. I have no idea what that last part means, but the first two parts make perfect sense. The uses of parables to transmit spiritual truths. A lot of the inspiration for the way people talk about Jesus is from the book of Isaiah. I have a wonderful translation by Robert Alter, gorgeous chapter 11, where he says, I say, and a shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse, Jesse being King David's father. 
A branch shall bloom from his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and insight, a spirit of counsel and valor, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, his very breath in the fear of the Lord. And not by what his eyes sees shall he judge, and not by what his ears hear shall he render verdict, and he shall judge the poor in justice and render right verdict for the lowly of the land, and he shall strike the land with the rod of his mouth, with the breath from his lips, put the wicked to death. And justice shall be the belt round his waist, faithfulness the belt round his loins, and the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard lie down with the kid, and the calf and the lion shall feed together, a little lad leading them, and the cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie. It was gorgeous. I'd love to be descended from that. Before I continue, my preparation was really getting me to think about which Jesus I was interested in. And there's the wonderful Elaine Pagels, I don't know how to pronounce her name correctly, who wrote many books, among them the Gnostic Gospels. And she has a very pertinent commentary. First of all, Thomas in Latin means twin. And his name was Thomas Didymus, which means twin, twin. There's been speculation that Jesus was talking to himself. How about that? Which would tend to give a lot of legitimacy to these words. Now, what Jesus are we talking about? So, Pagel says that in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is seen as an utterly unique being. This is the good news of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Now, the Gospel of John says that Jesus isn't even a human being at all. He's a divine presence who comes down from heaven in human shape. The Gospel of John says God sent his Son into the world to save the world. If you believe in him, you're saved. If you don't believe in him, you're already damned because you haven't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Okay, got it? That's three Jesuses. So, Thomas has a fourth. Gospel of Thomas, this Jesus comes to reveal that you and he are, if you like, twins. And what you discover as you read the Gospel of Thomas, which you're meant to discover, is that you and Jesus at a deep level are identical twins and that you discover that you are the child of God just as he is. Which I thought really made the Gospel of Thomas particularly delicious. I really would love to learn all about myself and especially finding out if I have that kind of ancestry, then it's really worth digging. So where did they find this text? A little comment before I continue. Geza Vermes, he makes this very wonderful comment. He says, if Jesus ever said anything humorous, the evangelists and the early church saw to it that no trace of wittiness would survive. How about that? I think this is important. Please keep this in mind. I'm sure that Jesus could be a riot when he wanted to. I'm sure he had them rolling in the aisles. But that makes for bad marketing. We can't have that. We can't have a funny savior. We need a serious savior. Life is grim, and then it ends badly, the usual story. 
So I think it would be really wonderful just for our personal amusement to consider the occasions in which he could have been funny. He was immensely resourceful, render unto Caesar. That was said in a very specific context about the gold coin. If he had answered it mistakenly, he would have been arrested on the spot. He knew what he was doing. He knew what was going on. And I'm sure, I'm sure that humor was a big part of his life. It just didn't get recorded. If any of you know humorous Jesus, let me know. I'd be very happy to hear about it. So just entertain that notion, which is quite entertaining. Now, the Gospel of Thomas was found in this small Egyptian town, Nag Hammadi. It was found in a jar buried in the ground in a region which monks had used for solitary meditation. And Nag Hammadi texts, which apparently number up to a thousand pages of texts all rolled up in papyrus, are associated with the Gnostic tradition. Now, the Gospels of Thomas, according to one commentator, are not really all that Gnostic because, I quote, they affirm the basic reality and sanctity of incarnate life, which Gnosticism, by definition, considers illusory. Okay, so here we get into definitions and traditions and stuff like this. Maybe you have a broader understanding or love of Gnosticism, whatever. But according to the definition, Gnostics promoted concepts of radical dualism that govern the universe, polarized as the soul's spark against the flesh, light against darkness. God originally emanated archons, powers like the light from the sun, seen but not physical. So this is to contrast it with the very down-to-earth and incarnate stuff of the Gospel of Thomas. At least that's the impression I got. So I was thinking that I would paste a bunch of these gospel statements in the um, chat, and you could um, choose one to chew on, or more. But here's the whole file. I just put it in the chat, and it's one particular translation which you can check out. By the way, another fascinating commenter on this is Osho, wrote a 300-page book called The Mustard Seed, where he talks about the Gospel of Thomas, which is his favorite gospel. His reflections are very useful because he brings you along quite gently and reasonably, and he makes it accessible. He says, for example, that if you really want to be able to listen to what's going on, you have to achieve some degree of silence. And how do you do that? And then he tells you how. I recommend that as well. So I'll give you my sources. This is the original French of the Gospel of Thomas, L'Evangile de Thomas, Jean-Yves Leloup, which is translated in English, very popular. And I showed you Giza um, Vermes's The Authentic Gospel of Jesus. Let's begin with number one. And he said, whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death. So that's pretty encouraging. I haven't tasted death, but I've been beside it. 
As Isocrates said, don't be afraid of death, because when it's there, you're not. That doesn't help me very much, but it's very practical. So, obviously, Jesus is speaking to his contemporaries. And once again, there are some interpreters who say the Gospel of Thomas, the words of Jesus, this is what he said. Then others say, no, can't be any earlier than the end of the first century, you know, 90 AD or something. And anyway, remember, the Gospels were originally spoken in Aramaic, then translated into Greek, and the Nag Hammadi texts are written in Coptic. Uh-oh. The language which is descended from ancient Egyptian. So you've got three distinct language families there. And so if they're the words of Jesus, okay, but they've been through the ringer of translation. Coptic has very many other admixtures, and there are quite a number of Coptics, and it's still used in contemporary Egypt by what remains of the Coptic church, which is going through very difficult times. They're not receiving the protection that they certainly deserve. So, death. Back to death. What a great way to get people interested in what you have to say. Taste death. Another translation is experience death. Well, what it means is that, well, look, let's be frank. Jesus is saying, if you discover this, you're not going to die. Hallelujah. That's pretty juicy. And of course, we don't remain fools too long. He doesn't mean that we're not going to leave the body. He means something else. So again, who's this for? Who's he talking to? Well, what is it that we're scared about in death? Can't control the body. Can't control what's going to happen to it. And apparently a lot of people who are dying, the thing they're most scared of is what's going to happen, what's going to be left of their memory. In addition, we've heard those answers about their regret having worked too much, not having spent enough time with their families. So you won't taste death. So you're going to discover something that's going to give you eternal life. Great introduction. So let's move on. Now, at least in the beginning, it's quite coherent and quite sensible. So we have this very attractive introduction. And then number two, Jesus said, those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. When they find, they will be disturbed. When they are disturbed, they will marvel and rule over all. If that is not the greatest, oh my God, it's so wonderful to be disturbed. There's nothing better to get out of yourself than to be disturbed. Another word for disturbed is troubled, but you get the idea. Now, Lee commented on this one. Let's look at it ourselves. Remember, these are parables. If Jesus wanted to be clear and literal, well, he would have been a historian or something. He wouldn't have spoken this way. This is deliberate. It's up to you where you are where you feel, where you sense, to make this your own. Here, I'll give you a, a really beautiful website. This website has all of the um, 114 logion of the Gospel of Thomas, three versions of each 
commentaries from readers and academics, which is really nice because the readers, there's some brilliant people out there and their comments are great. So, disturbed. What's this being about? Being troubled. I didn't come into this to be troubled. Why did I come into this? If I came into this not to allow myself to be troubled, well, this is where the train or wagon disconnects <laughs> and the train continues onward. Being troubled is essential. Gosh, that's easy to say, <laughs> saying in a very calm way. <laughs> December 25th, 1977, 46 years ago, Lee, he said, let him who seeks not cease seeking until he finds is saying that you must have a desire for God that is the most intense thing in your life. It is only with that kind of desire that you can get to be desireless at some point. If you're honest about seeking, you have to become sensitive. When that sensitivity becomes acute, you develop compassion. When you find what it is you have been seeking, you are troubled. Ah, okay, here we go. When you find what it is that you are seeking, you are troubled. Well, you've reached the jumping off point because none of your conceptions are valid. None of your presuppositions are worth anything. But something brought you to this wonderful point of troublement. You're standing there and you're saying, what's next? This is where it's really nice to have a teacher. Because teacher's there to shepherd you in and through alongside your trouble. But if you're alone, as many people are, and you reach that troubling point, you have to be kind to yourself. You have to give yourself some space, some place to breathe. And if you sit with it long enough, it will lead you through. It sounds pretty surefire certain of me, but I believe it. So you see that none of your conceptions are valid and all of the shoring up of your identity that you have tried is invalid. Once you have been troubled, you will marvel and will reign over the all. It's not like you are controlling the all, you will reign. You get the difference? It's an internal feeling. So if you're controlling, it's like you're pulling the strings. If you're reigning, you're present. Maybe you're throwing your orders out into the ether, but the reigning is inside here. That's where the reigning is taking place, which is the most useful place that we can reign because we actually do have some control over that inner kingdom. So what is there to control? It's not a matter of power, not like an earthly king who reigns over subjects and has to continually do something to keep power. You reign because you are the kingdom itself. These are Lee's words. You find the whole. What is there that is not you? So Lee wrote those words in 1977. So let's continue. That's just... Number two, there are 114 of these. 
Number three, very accessible, I believe. Jesus said, if your leaders say to you, look, the Father's imperial rule is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, it's in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the Father's imperial rule is inside you and outside you. When you know yourselves, then you will be known, and you will understand that you are children of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you live in poverty. You are the poverty. Now, this thing about inside and outside at the same time is why it's non-dual. It's not a dualistic version. There's no opposition. There's an important flow between the two. I think this is pretty accessible. It gets really mysterious later on. And by the way, this gospel, which was discovered in Nag Hammadi in 1945, there are similarities and repetitions with the better-known gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Obviously, they shared texts and borrowed from each other and shifted perspectives if they were not in agreement with what the other gospel was saying. Here's number four. Jesus said, the man old in days will not hesitate to ask a small child seven days old about the place of life, and he will live. For many who are first will become last, and they will become one and the same. What does it mean to ask a small child seven days old? What do you ask a child seven days old? A seven-day-old child cannot speak. They can't even focus their eyes very well. They sense presence. They sense their mother. So what are you asking here about the place of life? That's a pretty big question to ask a seven-day-old child. And Jesus said just asking the question of a seven-day-old child means you will live. So what's being asked? Who's being addressed? Again, make it yours. It's a wonderful thing. I mean, I love looking at kids. I know it's dangerous in New York City because you can't go into a square where there are children if you don't have a child with you. But in France, it's okay to look at children. It's cool. And looking at babies is especially rewarding. I'm an early riser. It's genetic, apparently. Apparently, the Neanderthals had this gene so that they would get up early and avoid being eaten by various animals. So the Neanderthal gene gets me up in the morning. I take the metro. And if they're children, and just sort of look at them. They don't need to look at me. But just the way they hold themselves, just the expression in their faces, just the way they move, the child's way of moving, it's extremely nourishing. Peter Brook, the great theater director who passed away last year, he had his students imitate a baby. And they were all doing ridiculous things, prancing across the stage. And finally, one student just walked across the stage. And he incarnated babyhood. It wasn't anything he did 
It's just something that he had inside him that he could show outside him. What a fabulous transmission. This is, I think, what the old man is looking at. He's looking at that transmission from the seven-day-old child, and it's just, what a blast of life. And it's a beautiful image. And thank God it's still here, and it'll stay here, I believe. You just have to be open to it. And as the great Rabbi Nachman said, it is forbidden to be old. And you keep that one in mind, and you look at babies, it's a winning proposition. So that's number four. So let's skip to six. His disciples asked him and said to him, do you want us to fast? How should we pray? Should we give to charity? What diet should we observe? Jesus said, don't lie. Don't do what you hate, because all things are disclosed before heaven. After all, there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed, and there is nothing covered up that will remain undisclosed. Wow. Again, I think that's pretty straightforward. The most important thing in my relationship to my spiritual master was faith. Jesus demanded absolute faith, immediate and absolute, unswerving faith. Did he get it? His disciples said, we want to be good. What do you want us to do? Yes, we want to satisfy you, Jesus. You know, those of you who, who have been in the presence of a master, the master just needs to stand there. And if we're in any way aware and vulnerable, it's infectious. It's this energy comes radiating inward. So, God, we want to please this guy, this woman. Oh, please. Do you want us to fast? I'll starve myself. I'll do anything you want. Shall we pray? How shall I do it? Alms? I'm sure this would have been a great opportunity for him to tell a joke. Yes, I'd like you to fast, but you can have a pizza once in a while or something. I don't know. Anything. Lachmajun. That would be the Palestinian equivalent of a pizza at that time. I'm sure that existed. He just not directly making fun of them, but he's telling them, well, look, sure, fast, pray, give alms, but better be real. If you're doing it against your will, if you're doing it with intense dislike in your spirit, you're in plain sight of heaven and it's not going to work. So the question isn't, do you want us to fast? A more interesting way to put it might have been, when are we fasting? When are we praying? When are we giving alms? And when are we dieting? As opposed to receiving an instruction, it's a matter of now, the state you're in, what's happening, what's appropriate. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a schedule of prayer and meditation and diet. But I think it's easy for me to recognize that my sincerity is quite variable with respect to these practices. My meditation isn't always the kind of meditation I would like the Lord to observe. Neither is my diet. And when they are, when there is this intersection of, oh, my fasting is fasting. My meditating is meditating. 
My praying is praying. My almsgiving is giving. Then, it's almost a moment of grace. My diet is dieting. Not in the sense of losing weight, just in the sense of what you're eating. Then, this intersection of grace, you're natural. You're alive. You're not under constraint. You're not following rules and regulations. And this is hard. I think it's hard. But I think this is what Jesus is bringing up here. So, let's go on. Shall we move on? There's so many more. <laughs> move on to number seven. Now it's starting to get a little bit strange. So Jesus is saying, I think I've got them on board. Let me throw them a, a whammy. So Jesus said, lucky is the lion that the human will eat so that the lion becomes human. And foul is the human that the lion will eat and the lion will become human. And the word lucky in another translation is blessed and eat becomes consumed and foul becomes cursed. But in both of them, we have a human eating a lion and the lion becoming human and the human being eaten by the lion and the lion will still become human. So what's happening here? It doesn't sound like very practical advice here. Lions existed at that time in that region of the world. They were even in Europe. In one Gnostic interpretation, the lion represents the ego or force or limitless power calculation. So I think it's not a very rich interpretation, but if you can eat your ego, you'll become human. But if your ego eats you, you're a lion. <laughs> You've remained a lion. Of course, the notion of ego is kind of 20th century, but you get what I mean. So something about mastering or being in touch with your passions, your desires, your foibles, all of these things that are normal and distractions that we need to get an intentional grip on so that we can eat the lion and become human. So that's one interpretation of this number seven. Then number eight, and he said, the human one is like a wise fisherman who cast his net into the sea and drew it up from the sea full of little fish. Among them, the wise fisherman discovered a fine, large fish. He threw all the little fish back into the sea and easily chose the large fish. Or whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. This expression is often used at the end of a, of a logion, which is, this is great. Are you listening? You get my drift? So, what's being talked about here? What do we have here? See, this is where it's really wonderful and personal, because I've never read this interpretation, but this is Lee's interpretation, and it's good enough for me. He says, the wise man doesn't keep all the other fish in case he can use them someday to set up an aquarium or to sell in the market. He throws them all back, except for one. When you see what is most important, we can call it God or awakening, all the other fish have to be thrown back. Sounds good to me. So 
why not just say, look, choose the important things in life and forget about all the other crap. That should be easy enough to remember. Okay, I'm going to choose the important things in life. But of course, it doesn't work. The story about the fisherman, it sits with you. Maybe it'll filter in, filter out. The image, those of us who love tales, there's so many fisherman tales. It's too bad I don't know of any fisherwoman tales. <laughs> the men are always fishing up like mermaids and silkies and fish that become women and fish that grant them boons if we respect this and that. But this is the biggest fish of all, a fine, large fish. This is a fish you want to hang on to and you want to respect. In all of the fairy tales, the man is usually a desperate poor fisherman starving to death. And one wonderful tale, he fishes up a beautiful fish who turns into a woman. And she says she'll stay with him, but that he can't see how she prepares a meal. And every day he has this delicious soup. If he can't stand it and he peeks into the kitchen, she puts herself into the pot in the hot water. And then she leaves it. And that's what she serves it. And then when she sees that he saw her, she vanishes. So he loses that fish. He loses that fine, large fish. Can we lose it? Can we lose this wonderful fish we've caught up after so many years? So many years of casting that net and failing, getting lots of nice little fish that we're going to save for our aquarium. Can we lose it? That's a consideration. So here's one of the many parables of the sowers. Jesus said, look, the sower went out, took a handful of seeds and scattered them. Some fell on the road and the birds came and gathered them. Others fell on rock. They didn't take root in the soil, and they didn't produce heads of grain. Others fell on thorns, and they choked the seeds, and worms ate them. And others fell on good soil, and it produced a good crop. It yielded 60 per measure and 120 per measure. So what does he mean by the road, the rock, the thorns, and good soil? According to what I saw, which makes sense, he's talking about four different kinds of audience. He's talking about a happy audience who just grabs it, takes it in, is really happy with it, plays around with it for a while, and then forgets about it. Talks about a hostile audience who doesn't allow it to enter at all. Nothing happens. And an audience which is neither hostile nor happy, but indifferent. Nothing happens. Then there's the good soil, and it produces a good crop. And of course, once again, none of this is immediate. These things take time. The United States won this very famous wine contest 50 years ago. The guy who won it, he was originally from Croatia, I think, came to the United States. He just died yesterday. He came from Croatia. His father was a winemaker. He went to this California vineyard, and he found a patron. And he explained to him that he could really make him a very fine wine. The patron said, great. Then he said, 
It's going to take five years. Peter said, what? Five years? Oh my God, I don't have five years. So he explained to him that wine isn't something you make from one day to the next. I swear it's a true story. It's the same here. I've got to wait at least one year to see whether or not one growing season, whether it's taken root, but the other three instances, your other three audiences, your other three ways of listening, it's not entering at all. And by the way, it's not just words that aren't entering. It's presence that's not entering. It's darshan. It's the ability to just be there. And people are saying, wow, I want to be where that person is. And I have no idea. The elegance of presence, it can be totally independent of any word. And it can even be independent of the way the person moves. But just their presence. At least we don't have crash weekend courses on how to develop deep spiritual presence. Someone will make a fortune. So their presence is a scattering of seeds. To have a master and to be recipient of those seeds. Again, it's a simple image. The first one that you read, just that one pithy statement, you will not taste death, is troubling. Like, what does that mean? It seems like Jesus's cryptic statements are meant to turn us in upon ourselves to search deeply for something that he has found hmm. and that is in us. What is the resistance? to that, if we see that there's some need to go beyond who we identify with, and suppose you don't have a teacher like Jesus, what would you say? How would you work with statements like this? There's something to them, it seems, a seed of something in there for us. Think about it today. It's extremely appropriate in our virulently death-phobic society. What death is this society so phobic about? Insanely phobic. Well, everyone's included in this statement. So what death is being talked about here? One answer is our fear of death. We won't fear it anymore. It'll be something else. What is it that people fear when they're dying? Oof, my mother had no fear. She had absolutely no fear. My wife, unfortunately, wasn't able to really address it. But my mother, she <laughs> just seemed so natural. My father rejected it. He rejected death violently. In one fantasy goes, I'm in the airplane and it's, uh-oh, it's going down. That's right, the name of God. That's right, here we go, the name of God. <laughs> right? Oh boy, I hope I'll do it. Okay, I said it more. Now what? Oh, it's still going down. In other words, how much of a grip do I have? With me and the present, Jesus knows that we'll die, but it's not going to kill us. To me, the type of death that he's talking about and what people fear of death is the death of form, not only physical form, but of all those constructs that one creates that form ones, and to use your earlier psychological term, ego, 
the death of ego, because without the form, the physical form, and without the egoic form, then there's no death. Those are the things that die, in my interpretation. But it seems like he's pushing the envelope to know that more than conceptually, to know that in the body. And for that to happen, we have to access maybe something that we don't know. I would say we can't know, and and knowing is not part of the answer. Maybe sensing. The word taste is wonderful. I wonder if that's a close translation or not. Taste. We can taste dying for sure. Diminution, weakening, all of those rummy symptoms of aging. But taste death. I find it wonderfully attractive, and I hope I'm up to it when the time comes. But what about right now? We won't taste death even now, right now. My answer, which always occurs to me, is this this inner radiance that you detect, for example, in a person that you love, in the master, this radiance that you are in contact with. Like in the presence of great masters, the presence of Gurdjieff, a lot of descriptions of being in his presence and the most incredible effect. Being in contact with this radiance, Lee's radiance, Arnaud Desjardins' radiance. Wow, what muscle did they strengthen to make that one appear? These people have discovered the interpretation of these sayings. They've reached a place where these sayings take on flesh. One thing that you said in the beginning that really interested me was the idea of being Jesus's twin, that Thomas means twin, mm-hmm. and how one interpretation might be that he was communicating that we are, in essence, the same as he is, which is so different from the way that Christianity and other religions are practiced today when we look to be saved in this one individual form, and we look outward to a supreme being to do that. Here, Jesus seems to be turning us on ourselves. Well, remember, Jesus doesn't have a single more cervical vertebra than you or I. He's just the same as flesh and blood. I firmly believe this. He was graced at an early age. He's no more the son of God than you or I, but he realized it. He discovered it. There are Christians who hold Jesus in this particular way. They don't need a church, the church. Jesus, for me, in this way, is utterly alive and at least beginning accessible. But the amount of work involved, the master turns to you and says, okay, go or come. And no, you don't have time to say goodbye to your family. That's it. Come now. Mayor Baba did this. Lots of great masters have done this. It's a wonderful image, and it's a true image, and it really has happened. In Aikido, there's the same image of the founder of Aikido, a great spiritual master who, who didn't answer a call at one particular point and regretted it for his whole life. You answer when it's there. So, I think these humans are no physiologically different. 
from you or I, I think that it's a terrible thing that religion has done to put them on an inaccessible pedestal. Yes, put them on a pedestal, no problem, but don't make it inaccessible. Christ is so vitally human. Does anyone want to say anything else? Otherwise, I'll jump into number 13. Um, the one that I wanted to speak to was the one about cease not your seeking until he finds. And when you find what you are seeking, you will be troubled. And then, once you are troubled, you will marvel, and then you will reign. You kind of skipped over the marvel part. Mm. I have a friend who's a builder. He works for an architectural firm. And if you visit him while he's working, you'll find him just sitting there. And I found him sitting in front of something he was doing. And I said, what's going on here? What are you doing? He said, I'm marveling. So that between being troubled and reigning over all, there's this opportunity, it seems to me. I wanted to bring in the marveling part because I sometimes think that that's something that I myself miss because I think it's important. I mean, Jesus said, right? So you work, you reach a point where maybe it's a horror of the situation point, for example, Alagurjev, terror, horror of the situation. Oh God, that's me? And you're more than troubled, you're horrified. And then from there... Enormous vistas are opened because it's going to give you infinite work opportunity. And because it is really immense, seeing that, the first sign of understanding is happiness. There's a swell of happiness that runs through you, and then you get down to the task at hand, which is bloody immense, and is probably going to take your whole life. So. You're just going along, you're troubled, you marvel at it. And in this sphere of marveling, remember, you're doing the marveling. Oh, what a wonderful state. Marveling is like an expression of joy. And to be there, it's your universe, by golly. <laughs> no one else can marvel with you. We don't have any marvel meters so that we can compare each other. And so you're in it, and it's up to you to keep going there. And then again, the process will probably repeat itself. I may misquote Gurdjieff at another level. Maybe you've jumped an octave or several, but it's a beautiful description of a living process. The other thing I was thinking was that in this process that he seems to be describing, there is a dissolution of ego and a sense of self, that might be the troubling part. We see when we confront those constructs, which do die, and when we see that, that's troubling. But then when we get into it and we see that it does not die, then that becomes the marveling. And then, like you say, that opens up to reigning over all. I mean, I don't know how that works. It's a feeling. It's, yeah. I got a feeling, a feeling I can't hide, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, but it might also be troubling on the other side for a master like Jesus to see the state that the human race is in, trying to shake things up and help people to see something that is occluded completely. The death part, 
what just kept coming up for me was when I was giving birth and having contractions and the habitual thing I wanted to do was to contract more. And I was lucky enough to be with a nun actually who put her hand on my stomach and said, try and push my hand off your belly. And that meant I had to expand. And so is our talking about death the same as birth in which in our fear, we naturally want to contract because we are scared. But if we would just let go and allow expansion, then that would make a difference. It's wonderful to have such great guidance at the right time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, expand into not being hooked by the customary fear of death. And the whole letting go and relaxing. And it kind of ties into what we were talked about. If it's all God, then is God worried about the mess we're making of things? Or is it just a natural progression? Does it only look like a mess because we're in duality? Are we in the middle of evolution and we just don't see it? Do we just need to relax? And if we just relax, will it just flow more easily? Is it our contracting and our worrying about ourselves and everything just perpetuating the problem? These are the kind of things I wonder about. Like, I don't know. I would bet things would make life a lot easier if we could. It'd be at least a partial answer. The concentration of bad news is so unprecedented because we have the means to concentrate it. So we're barraged and bound by it literally all day long. Humans are better and worse than they've ever been. <laughs> the best and the worst. I don't know that they're any different than they've ever been. There seems to be a lot of a lot more worldwide desire for some sort of cooperation than, than has ever existed. And at the same time, there seems to be also worldwide plunging into chaos and violence, 2021st century phenomena. Yeah, I don't know. But we just got to work individually, got to do it individually. Yep. So you've got the list of logion. What's the Greek plural here? Maybe it's logia. And again, there's so many translations which are quite close to each other. And there's also a lot of argument about the contents of some of it, whether or not something's missing or something makes sense. And as far as the interpretations go, it depends where you are, I think. Just sort of run it around and verbalize it, read it out loud and see what happens. Just like saying them out loud brings up where you are.